Very thankful for another opportunity to come and study the Word of God together this morning. I'd like to ask you to open your Bible to begin with to the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. We want to borrow uh, an expression that's found in Acts chapter 17 as a title for our study this morning. The title of our message will be A Church That Turns the World upside down. As Brother Nathan has reminded us, we're living in very uh, troubled times, very perilous times. We're caused on days like today to reflect 21 years ago when our nation was attacked so viciously and unexpectedly by the Muslim uh, radicals who chose to die for their faith. Remember that it was a religious conquest. It wasn't an, uh, only an ideological conquest. It, it was a religious conquest. Their hatred of America exceeded their love of their own lives. And while we categorically condemn such actions of, of violence and treachery, we learned something about the conviction of being willing to die for we what we believe in and serve the God that we know. This morning we're thinking about a lot of things. Uh, in our world today, politically, economically, um, morally, tragedies on every page of the newspaper. We even read about the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, who ruled as Queen of England for 70 years and probably will be one of the most uh, favored and well-known rulers of our lifetime. And England is upside down. You know, they've shut down the banks, they've shut down the whole country in recognition of the passing of a great, great queen. We, we think about events that have happened throughout human history and especially American history that, that reflect a time or a period or a season in which the world was upside down. Pearl Harbor. Who could forget Pearl Harbor? and what happened and how it affected our nation. The assassination of John F. K. I'm just telling you, there's, there's events that literally turn the world upside down. And um, in Acts chapter 17, we find this very expression, not concerning that which was evil or that which was... Um, against God or against God's people, but in reference to the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. Because as we recall our studies in the book of Acts in chapter 16, the apostle Paul and his companions were led by the Spirit to go to Philippi, and that was the very first church that was established on European soil. And not long after that, they would leave Philippi and they would go uh, south and they would uh, 
as we find in chapter 17, verse 1, they would go through Amphipolis and Apollonia on their way to a place called Thessalonica. This, of course, is the Greek uh, city or province of, um, of Macedonia. In fact, it's, it's very rich in history because Thessalonica at one time was the capital of Macedonia where a king named uh, Cassander, who was a general of Alexander the Great, ruled from that very city. And he changed the name of that city from Therma, because of the hot springs that were there, to Thessalonica in honor of Alexander the Great's sister. Now, that was in 300 B.C. 300 years before Christ came, you see this rich Greek culture and history of learning and, and culture that uh, the Apostle Paul was sent by the Spirit to proclaim the message of Christ to. Now, the great question I want to ask this morning, all of us, is what kind of church can turn the world upside down, can have such an impact and such an influence that it would be viewed as a a life-changing event. We're going to learn more about this in our study of the model left for us in the pages of Scripture about the church at Thessalonica. Here the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy are coming into Thessalonica, and as his manner was, he went to the synagogue of the Jews And Paul, verse 2, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days, three weeks, reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. The word reason there is dialogamy, which means to dialogue, to to exchange. It's a two-way street. They reasoned one with another out of the Scriptures. Now, the very first point I want to make about a a church that can impact the world in such a way as it turns the world upside down is that it is a scriptural-based church. I'm not here this morning to give to you my ideas. I'm not here to spread human philosophy. But what I am called to do is to stand before you and take the scriptural record of God and His Word and expound them to you, explain them to you, to encourage you in your pursuit of them. So here is the pattern that Paul is setting before us. His manner was to go to the Scriptures when he would teach. Opening and alleging. Now these are two archaic words also uh, that, that have a deep meaning Opening means to make plain, to exhibit. Somebody says, Brother Jeff, what you preached today, it was so deep. What they're actually saying is, Brother Jeff, you preached in such a way, I didn't understand a word you said. We're commanded to open by God's grace and through His Spirit to open, to exhibit, to make plain what the Scriptures teach. Opening, and not only opening, but also alleging. That's an interesting word study. It means to set 
uh, forth alongside of another. In other words, to set forth the truth of the church alongside the scriptural record and make sure that they correspond, that they agree one with another. Opening and alleging that Christ, the Messiah, must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. No apology. Uh, no backward uh, reference uh, in such a way as hope that uh, this, this will not offend anyone. The Apostle Paul is point blank boldly declaring that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. No apology. And some of them believed. Same conditions today. Some people believe, some people don't. Some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks. Now, the, when it says devout Greeks, he's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about you and me. Devout Greeks. These are God seekers, God lovers. They devout Greeks, a great multitude of, of chief women and not a few. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows. These are uh, loiterers. These are market loungers, as the word would indicate, of the baser sort. And gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar. Uh, you thought Antifa was the only ones that burned down cities. Well, here you're, you're reading about a group uh, of a baser sort that could care less about the welfare of society. They only have a, a, a desire to exert their selfish will upon others. Lewd fellows. We still have them today, don't we? Of a baser sort and gathered a company and uh, all the city was in an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason, and who, who by the way, was a, a, a minister in this Jewish synagogue, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. What an interesting way to put it. Now Luke, the historian, is writing these, these events. And what an interesting way to express how the early church impacted the culture. It is said that they turned the world upside down. But we know from a study of scripture that the only time the world is right side up is when it's upside down. Because the ways of the world are contrary to the ways of God. Galatians chapter 5 verse 17, he expresses it this way. He, he, he teaches us that there's a, a, a counter-cultural tension, struggle between the children of light and the children of darkness. Always has been, always will be. Jesus would put it this way. He, he would say in his teachings, remember this. You are in the world, but you're not 
of the world. You are lights in the world, shining in the dark recesses of a sin-cursed and broken world, but you're not of the world. This world is not your home. This uh, world is a temporary dwelling place for you. But while you are in the world, God has called you to impact the world in such a way that it could be said you've turned the world upside down. Isn't it interesting that God would use all through history, God would use uh, radical voices to proclaim his will to a fallen world or a fallen nation. Anytime I think about this, I think about it in context with Elijah. Remember what Ahab said to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. He said, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Are you the one trying to turn the world upside down, Elijah? Do you remember Jeremiah? And Jeremiah before Judah's last king, Zedekiah, in Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 4. You know what the charge against Jeremiah was? That the words that he was speaking was not to help the people of Judah, but only to hurt them. And they put him in prison. How about Amos before Jeroboam, king of Israel in Amos chapter 7, verses 10 through 12? Prophesying. He, he was telling the truth <laughs> that, that, that the armies of Assyria were coming against Israel and they would be victorious. And that Jeroboam would be taken away from the throne and his very children enslaved. Amos was was telling the truth and they whooped him up and they bound him up and they brought him before Jeroboam and Jeroboam says, okay, I'm going to recognize that you're a prophet, but I don't want you to prophesy here. I want you to go to Judah. They'll welcome you there, but I don't want you to prophesy anymore in Bethel. I don't want you to prophesy anymore in Samaria. I don't want to hear what you have to say. Does that sound like cancel culture to you? If your voice is going to conflict with the majority voice of our nation, we're just going to cancel you. We're going to shut down your website. We're going to shut down your Facebook. We're going to take down uh, from any public view what you are saying. And I love what Amos said. You know, Amos says, hey, King. You know, I know you're important. I know you're rich. And I know, I know everything, everything about you. I, I'm just a herdsman. I, I'm just a, a shepherd boy. I, I'm just uh, somebody out here, a nobody. But I want you to understand, God called this nobody to tell everybody about the only somebody that really matters. And you've forgotten him. Isn't it interesting? How God would take such a, what the world considers insignificant people and make them uh, rise to turn the world upside down. Like Elijah, like Jeremiah, like Amos. How about John the Baptist? You talk about a radical. Matthew 3 1, he came out of the wilderness of Judea. 
And what was his message? Was it a message that uh, was super inclusive? Was it a message that could be considered, quote unquote, non-offensive? You know what he said? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Radical. Radical. Somebody that could be considered anti-socialist. Or in modern terms, anti-Marxist. How about Jesus himself? Do you remember in Luke chapter 23, verses 2 and 5, when Jesus was brought before Pilate and they laid all of these charges against him? And they were false charges. But the main charge that really interested Pilate was when they said that he is the king of the Jews. Boy, that got his attention. Because, see, that's political. And that could affect his uh, political standing in the eyes of Caesar. So the only thing that he asked Jesus, have you realized this? The only thing that he asked Jesus was, art thou a king of the Jews? Why would he ask that? Because of the political connotation. Are you raising a rebellion against Caesar? Are you... Someone that in uh, uh, authority and in positions of leadership are going to lead Judea against the governance of Rome? See, that's why he was asking that question. And our Savior said, thou sayest. In, In other words, he says, I am king. For this cause came I into the world. For this hour was I born. He was and is king. But he's not a king like the world's kings. He's not one that is interested in um, the servitude and death of his servants. But he as a king would come and suffer, bleed, and die for his servants. See, he's he's a different kind of king. It seems like it's turning the world upside down. And here in Acts chapter 17, here's another radical named Paul. And he's proclaiming without apology the truth of Jesus Christ being the Son of God, being the, uh, the only uh, Messiah, the only way to the Father, the only means by which men and women and boys and girls can be saved. After... He preached in just a a very short time after he proclaimed the gospel to that great city. uh, Because of the tumult, they asked him to leave, and Paul did. Paul uh, left Thessalonica. And and as you read the rest of the chapter, they went uh, to Berea. And the same Jews that that had upset the city of Thessalonica followed him to Berea, and and they carried him away to a ship. Uh, in, by night uh, to deliver him from uh, the persecutors of Berea and he went from there to Athens and then from Athens he would go to Corinth and, and, and uh, uh, Silas and Timothy would meet him at Corinth and when Silas and Timothy met the apostle Paul at Corinth they told him what was going on at Thessalonica they says man 
you talk about persecution. There is hot persecution against the church in Thessalonica. They are greatly hated because the charge against them is they are turning the world upside down. So the Apostle Paul at Corinth sits down and he begins to write one of his first letters. And it's called the letter to the church at Thessalonica. Turn your Bible with me to the first chapter of that letter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Ten short verses that we would like to expound upon with you this morning. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Silvanus. Now, Silvanus is another name for Silas. And Timotheus, Timothy, these three. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, stop right there and consider who this letter is to. This letter is to the church at Thessalonica, the ecclesia, the called out assembly that God through his infinite mercy and grace uh, gathered in the community of Thessalonica. He's acknowledging them as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, it was Jesus that said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, uh, that he would build the church. He, he is the great architect. He is the builder and sustainer of the church. And he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell are there, uh, the, and behind those gates are uh, people that are captured, uh, people that are captives of the devil. Uh, captives of uh, evil forces, captives of ignorance and ignominy and injustice. They're captives behind these huge fiery gates. But Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus. He, it won't prevail. The church is marching forward through the gates of hell as it were to rescue the captives behind those gates. Remember that, would you? And, uh, and, and he says, uh, which, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that the scriptural truth that sustains the church of Christ is based upon the deity of Christ as Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's, uh, uh, the, the, the church is not just a gathering of Jewish people. It, it, it's not just uh, for one nation. It, it's not just for the, the, the natural descendants of Abraham. But it's also for devout Greeks. It's also for Gentiles. Uh, the elect among the Gentiles. Now, that's who it's for. Grace be unto you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it's the deity of Christ. Uh, he's seen as being equal with God the Father and equal with God the Holy Spirit. 
It's very important for us to, it's very, very important for us to understand that because, uh, you know, false teachers uh, claim that it, that, that belief in Jesus Christ is incidental. A belief in Jesus Christ is just uh, an added blessing that just gives the joy to people's uh, salvation. But brothers and sisters, that, that's not scripturally true. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 23, the Apostle John said this, Whosoever denies the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledges the Son hath the Father also. Somebody says, well, I believe in the Father. I just don't believe in the Son. Well, brothers and sisters, one of the great evidences of salvation is is that we believe in the Son. And we believe that Jesus Christ is the door of salvation. That Jesus Christ is the offering that God the Father accepted on our behalf. You see, you can't separate the two. Somebody says, well, Brother Jeff, don't you believe in time salvation? Yes, I do. I believe in salvation in time, but I don't separate that salvation from eternity. Somebody says, well, Brother Jeff, I believe that uh, all of God's children have eternal salvation, but very few of them, mainly old Baptists, have time salvation. Where do you get that? Give me the chapter and verse on that. Remember, I, I told you that a church that turns the world upside down is going to be a scriptural church. Brothers and sisters, I, I, want, you to, I want to be plain. I want to be... Um, gentle and i want to be bold in the word of god with you this this morning because that's exactly the gospel that is going to impact our culture for christ we cannot separate et- eternal salvation or the eternal purpose of god in saving the elect from the timely experience of that salvation and i'm going to expound on that a little more in just a moment You can't separate the two. You can't say that God's people have one but don't have the other. God's people have both. Hallelujah. And and I'll show it to you. If you'll give me a chance, I'll, I'll show it to you from the Word of God why we believe that there's one salvation with two aspects, eternity and time. There's not two salvations separated from one another biblically. One salvation with two aspects. The first point I wanted to make is that it's a scriptural church. Is it important for our belief system to correspond to the scripture? Can I get an amen? If we we don't have the scripture behind what we believe, we don't have an anchor to hold us. We'll we'll just kind of be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine whatever's popular is going to guide the church whatever is acceptable will guide the church whatever is traditional will guide the church well brothers and sisters a church that will turn the world upside down is not going to be guided by the whims of men it's going to be guided by the scripture itself the word of god has preeminence the word of god it's it's a scriptural church 
the Apostle Paul says, we give thanks to God always for you all. That's why I think he was Southern right there. You all. I love that, don't you? Uh, I, I mean, it just that's my heart language right there. We give thanks to God always for you all. Who knows? Maybe even in Tennessee and Mississippi. Making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering without ceasing three things. There's three things here that he's going to remember so vividly about the church that turns the world upside down. And these three elements, or could we say graces, are actually what allows the church to impact the world today. Same thing. Remembering without ceasing, number one, your work of faith. Number two, your labor of love. Number three, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Let's consider those three graces. We could call that a trinity. A trinity of graces that uh, was displayed or exhibited in the life and character of the church that turned the world upside down. What does he mean by work of faith? Is he saying that I noticed that you were able to work for a saving faith? Is he saying that because of your efforts, I know that you are uh, children of God because of your work? God then gave you faith. God then gave you grace. You were then born again. And now you're able to function as a church. I don't believe that. I believe what he's doing is identifying the evidences of their gracious state. The evidences that they were a born again people. They were born by the Spirit of God. God prepared their hearts to receive the good news, the gospel of the Son of God. And when Paul and Silas and Timothy began to expound those scriptures, their hearts said, I believe that. They were able to embrace it. And uh, that faith began to work out in their lives. In James chapter 2, he gives us a clarion warning. He says, faith without works is dead being alone. Faith without works is dead being alone. He didn't say you're working to get faith. He says the faith that is truly saving faith or the evidence of a saving work of grace in your life is going to be manifested by works. For by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works, which he before ordained that we should walk in them. We're not working to get faith. We're working because we have faith. So the Apostle Paul is identifying the true evidences of a born-again community of believers called the church. Did you know that in Hassel's church history, he has 12 marks of the apostolic church? Did you know that number one on his list was they, uh, uh, the, the early church uh, was made up of born-again believers? That's part of our heritage. 
In other words, there was evidence in their life that they had true faith. There was no question about that. He says, I remember, verse 3, I remember without ceasing your work of faith. And number two, and labor of love. That word labor is a very important word in the Greek language. It's specific. It means to toil to the point of exhaustion. Have you ever been there? Have you ever, have you ever toiled to the point where you just, you just could, like Brother Don is prone to say, uh, my got up and go, get up and go done, got up and went. Exhaustion. Well, labor. Labor of what? Labor of love. Well, what kind of love is he talking about? You know, we, we have uh, one English word, love, but the Greek words are more specific than the one English word that we use for love. You know, we, we love pizza. But is that the same thing as saying we love our wife? I mean, we use the same word, but we understand it, it has a different connotation. Well, in the Greek language, it's that way. In the Greek language, we find the word eros, from which we actually get ero erotic, which is a natural, um, uh, um, uh, a natural uh, of affection. A romantic. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you, brother. <laughs> uh, rom a, a romantic uh, love that God gave a man and a woman, a man to be attracted to a woman and a woman attracted to a man. God gave you that. God gave you that. It's a natural love. And, and then there's a word, storche, in the Greek language that literally it describes the affection that a mother has for an infant child. It's, it's nearly in, inexplainable. When that child is born and they put that child into the hands of that uh, mother and she puts that child to her breast to nurture that child with milk. That is one of the most beautiful things that we could ever witness. Well, God gave us that kind of love, that, that parental love that we have for a child. God gave us that. And then there's phileos, which is um, friendship love, like Philadelphia, the city of friends, right? We, we understand that. But what we're talking about this morning and what we need to be walking in and growing in is agape love. It's a Christian love. It is the love of the Holy Spirit. It is a love that is produced by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. According to Romans 15, uh, 5 and verse 5. Uh, and many other verses come to my mind uh, that I, I shouldn't uh, get after right now. Uh, but it's an important point. We're talking about a spiritual love, a sacrificial love. A, a love that always is seeking the benefit and welfare of others, even to the sacrifice of my own will. This is the kind of love that Jesus had when he died for his people upon the cross. This, this is the love that we find in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It's an agape love. It's the highest love. And God is the author of that. And, and Paul says, you know, when I remember your labor of love, 
you're laboring to the point of exhaustion, not for any other uh, reason or not for any other reward, but that just you are expressing your love for Christ by virtue of your labors. And not only that, your patience of hope, your, uh, your ability to wait for the second coming of Christ, the patience of hope, the basis of that hope is founded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Realizing that Christ raised from the dead, it gives me that assurance that I will also be raised from the dead. You see, the, the hope under consideration is the confident expectation of that which is good. It's an expectation based upon what God has taught us through the Spirit and through His Word. So we have the work of faith, labor of love, and the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now my first point was that this is a scriptural church, right? It's a, it's a church based upon the Word of God, the Scriptures. The second thing is that it is a spiritual church. It, it is a church that's filled with spiritual faith, spiritual love, spiritual hope. It's, it's spiritual. The third thing that I want to notice is that it is a special church. It is made up of the elect. The elect of God. Somebody says, Brother Jeff, that's a troubling doctrine to me. When I think about election, I think about a God who is being unfair to everybody. It just seems like uh, God would be unfair to choose some and pass over others. Well, brothers and sisters, that, that's a common, um, that's a common uh, opposing argument to the doctrine of election. But once you understand the biblical truth of election... You rejoice in it because you recognize that God didn't have any obligation to choose anyone at all. All of us deserve hell and abandonment. All of us because we're all sinners. But yet in God's grace and tender mercies, He chose a people to be a special treasure to Himself. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election of God. Re very quickly, give me one, uh, one, one, one moment here in Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians two thirteen. Just, just very quick. Just flip two pages, and you got it. Listen, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. You see, brothers and sisters, God's election is based upon His own will, His own sovereign power and design and purpose. And Paul is rejoicing in this church. And, 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 and here's just a point to ponder. I told you a moment ago that when he left Philippi, he went through two cities. 
on his way to Thessalonica. Question. Why didn't Paul, Silas, and Timothy stop at those two cities? Have you ever thought about this? There never has been a church in those two cities. There, there, there's not a Christian witness in those two cities. But there was a particular place that the Holy Spirit said, I want you to go. And why do I want you to go there? Because I have elect there. I have a people there that are prepared to receive the truth of the gospel there. And, and that is not the case in these two cities, but it is in that one. And by the way, he's still doing that today. I want you to know that. He's still doing that today. Where God has elect in this world, he's designed it so that he'll send the gospel to them. He'll send the truth to them. That's his way. So Paul is saying, knowing, brethren, beloved, the election of God. You're special in the eyes of God. How do I know your election of God? How do I know it? Because you have E printed in your forehead. Uh-uh. No. Because you vote Republican. Uh, no, no. Uh, because you are um, um, an American. Just using that. No. How do I know your elect of God? Listen carefully to verse 5. For our gospel. Here it is. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Here he says, the reason I know I'm confident in your election of God is because of the way you responded to the gospel. You responded in faith and you responded in obedience. You re responded in repentance of known sin. You, you responded in that way. And because of that evidence, I know that you are the elect of God. In verse 6. And you became followers of us. And of the Lord. Having received the word in much affliction. Remember they were persecuted. They were being. Uh, uh, they were being canceled. They were being persecuted. They were being isolated. They were being separated. Because of their expression of faith in Christ. He said you received the word. Even though it cost you something. And true discipleship always will. It'll cost you. Maybe that job. Maybe that job advancement. Maybe that raise. Hmm? Maybe that invitation to uh, certain social circles. It's going to cost you to follow Christ. But the only way that you're going to be used in the economy of God to turn the world upside down is to be willing to pay the price. He said, you received the word in much affliction, though it cost you something, with joy of the Holy Ghost. I underline the word joy there. Because the world is pursuing happiness, right? But happiness is always depending upon circumstance. There are many circumstances that will make you very unhappy. Amen? 
very many things in this world make us unhappy. But there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness depends on circumstances. Joy depends on the spirit. You can experience joy in the heart even though your circumstances are terrible. The Apostle Paul and Silas, when they were in that prison over at Philippi, they were able to sing at midnight with great joy in their heart, even though their circumstances were very, very terrible. The Apostle Paul said, you know, when I came among you Thessalonians, I saw something. That, that is so beautiful to me. I saw that even though you're willing to suffer for the testimony of Christ, even though you're willing to go through all of these deprivations, you do it with joy as Christians. And then he says, um, and, 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 and see, they're special. They're special because they're elect of God. They're special because they're willing to suffer. They're, they're special because they're willing to pay the price. They're special because they are manifesting this great Christian joy even in the midst of times of affliction and sorrow. Verse 7, And you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. The reason he divided Macedonia from Achaia is because at this time in history, uh, they were all Greeks, but at this time in history, the northern half of Greece uh, was under the Roman province of uh, uh, Macedonia. They called it uh, Macedonia, and the southern province, uh, Roman province, was uh, Achaia, and the capital of Achaia was Corinth, and the capital of Macedonia was Philippi, so in the Roman time. So he's dividing those, and he says, you know, you're an example. You're a great example of what a church ought to be. You're a great example of a church that turns the world upside down. And whether we're uh, in the northern sector of Macedonia or in the southern sector of Archaea, hundreds of miles, people have heard of your faith. Isn't that amazing? Your examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out. Now that's one of our favorite words. Sounded out. To reverberate as a trumpet. Sounded out. What kind of trumpet is he talking about? I believe he's talking about the gospel trumpet. They were sharing what they understood about Jesus Christ with those around them. They, 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 they were a sounding out church. They were an evangelistic church. And uh, from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. In other words, when they would go into these communities, they'd say, hey, guess what's happening over at Thessalonica? Oh, we've heard about that. Yeah, there was, a, there, there was a, a, a shipper that came through here and he was bragging on those good folks up at Thessalonica. You know, uh, they had somebody sick and those folks at Thessalonica sent somebody to pray for him. And boy, he was telling us about that. 
Yeah, I had a, I, I, I had a grandmama that was in a nursing home over there in Thessalonica. And you know that church went to see those old people knowing that they couldn't do anything in return for them? Would you believe that over in Thessalonica there's a people over yonder that will give them Thanksgiving gifts and Christmas gifts uh, without any, asking anything in return just because they love somebody named Jesus? They turn the world upside down. What an example. <laughs> what an example. Verse 9 for they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how that ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Now let this verse sink in. This is the evidence of salvation. The turning, repenting. That's what it means. He's talking about repentance. He's talking about turning from what is false, turning from what is evil, uh, turning from what is dark, uh, turning from what is uh, against God to serving Him, to serving God. Is not this the work of true faith? Our forefathers called it saving faith. Not that faith is what does the saving. Christ did the saving. But faith is what lays hold upon the saving work that Christ has done for us. Is not this the work of faith that turns us from idols uh, and as we repent and turn from our sin? And, and, and listen to this. <clears throat> the labor of love is what brings us to serve the true and the living God. And others. Here's the servant's heart. Just wanting to serve people. Because of our love for Christ. What a tremendous report. And then. And then verse 10. And to wait. For his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus. Which delivered us from the wrath to come. You see, this church that is a scriptural church, this church that is a spiritual church, this church that is a special church, this church that is a sounding out church, this church is also a second coming church. They believe in the literal. I said literal. And imminent return of Jesus Christ. Here's the, here brothers, is the, Patience of hope. Here's the patience of hope. Enduring trials through the expectation of Christ's second coming. Living in the light of Christ's literal and imminent return. And there are many verses that we could uh, share with you on this. But I want to notice in closing. I, I, I would like to notice this, this part of it. That, 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 that uh, the religious world around us today is really ignoring. And that is the wrath that is to come. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't know about your eschatological understanding, your understanding of the end times, but I'll tell you this. On the authority of God's word, there's a day of wrath coming. 
There's a day of judgment coming against the wicked. The wicked are going to be judged. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, when Paul was at Athens, remember, he said, God hath appointed a day in which he shall judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. He, he's, a, he, he, he's appointed a day when that's going to come. Well, the church at Thessalonica believed that God appointed that day. And they didn't know when the day was. And they would walk up, wake up in the morning and say, Hey, next door neighbor, today might be the day when Jesus comes again. Are you ready? Are you ready for his coming? Are you longing for his coming? Are you anticipating his coming? When Jesus Christ comes again, what do you want to be found doing? Is that a sobering question? It is. See, if, if I'm not cognizant of the, if, if I'm not anticipating the second coming of Christ, don't you see? It minimizes, it minimizes the way I'm living each day. It, in other words, it doesn't matter how I live, what I do, my choices, the choices that I make. Because after all, Christ might not come today. But oh, our Savior, how often did he warn against that? How often did he say to you and me and to the church in every age, be watchful, Gregoreo, be alert, be sober and vigilant every day. Why? Because Jesus could come at any moment. What do you want him to find, uh, coming to find you doing? Do you want him to come finding you doing sinful things? Evil things? Things that are not in agreement with the scripture? Knowing that he's going to judge for that? Paul said in Hebrews chapter 9, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, what? The judgment. Do you think that that is an important message for our day? That there is a payday someday. That nobody's getting away with anything. I believe personally that the 2020 election was rigged and stolen. And there's a lot of folks that will condemn me for saying that publicly. But I believe that that's what happened. And there's a lot of people that think they're getting away with it. But I can read the Bible... And I can tell them that one day there's a payday because the God of heaven sees all things. He doesn't just see the good. He doesn't just see us at church on Sunday morning. He sees each and every day. He sees each and every moment of this universe. And he's cognizant of it. And he will bring every work into judgment whether good or evil. Would that kind of make a difference in the way that I live my life? Realizing that I'm going to stand before the judgment seat, even as a believer, I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm not going to stand before the great white throne judgment at the very end of the age, but I'm going to, I'm going to give account to Jesus Christ how I've lived my life. Does that make a difference to you? It does to me. 
if you want to be a church like Thessalonica, if you, if you really want to be a part of God's program in turning the world upside down, you're going to have to follow this pattern. You're going to have to be scriptural. You're going to have to be spiritual. You're going to have to be special. You're going to have to be a sounding out church. And you're going to have to be a second coming church. You know, my greatest desire for Providence Church is not that we would have thousands of members. Not that we would uh, have thousands of dollars in our bank account. Not, not that we would have anything that the world would consider successful. My sole desire for our church is that when we come to the end of our race, We'll look back, and we'll, we'll say, you know, they were few in number, but, but they were great in faith. They, they labored in love. They were able to be patient to the second coming of the Savior. And you know what? I think they were trying to do I think they were trying to turn this world upside down. God bless you.